Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. As we reach the end of this chapter, we've been we've seen Paul command that elders are to be honored and even paid, um, especially those that are doing good hard work at preaching and teaching. And as part of honoring them, he also warns the church not to accept accusations against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. So that just is uh, connected right to the honor, that there's this appropriate way of treating elders that doesn't assume the worst about them the moment that somebody has a complaint or an accusation, right? But then he gets into this sort of back and forth of, but make sure that if they're sinning, they are rebuked. And, and, and even more intensely because of their position than, than others. They're to be rebuked in the presence of all. And then he says, and, and don't show favoritism to them. So he, he what you have is you've got the, uh, as, as we so often do, you've got this, um, this sort of warning on, on both sides of the road. There are these ditches that we can fall into, right? And so as he, as he warns against favoritism, he actually makes that, uh, the, the, the most intense part of the passage as he, he goes into reminding Timothy that, and all of us that God and Jesus and even the angels are witnesses of our actions in this area, in how we respond to elders, how we treat the elders. And so there are ways of treating them badly that are uh, by being showing too much favor to them. And there are ways of treating them badly that are not honoring them enough, right? Both of those, though, are bad. And so, I like to point out the places where angels are brought up in the Bible, uh, because in our day and age, we just don't really believe in angels as a as a culture, right? Now, there's all kinds of spiritual, spiritualistic. Uh, I don't know what to call it, sort of mysticism or belief in ghosts and and all kinds of random, whatever happens to be out there kind of things that, that people believe. People believe in aliens, but angels are sort of one of those things that are like, you got to be kidding me. You believe in angels? Um, and I like to I like to bring aliens and angels together just for that reason, because, I mean, come on. Right? Otherworldly creatures with superpowers, I mean, that are invisible and, and interact with us. And okay, I mean, I'm not saying aliens are, are angels or angels are aliens, but if you're going to believe in aliens, 
What possible basis could you have for not believing in angels? Right? So, but why, that's not why, oh, okay, I always enjoy bringing up aliens. Uh, That's not why I bring up, that's not what we see being talked about here by Paul. Let's put it that way. (laughs) He brings up angels, though, on a semi-regular basis. And often what he does is, when he brings up angels, is he uses them as a call for us to be aware of what we're doing, to be aware of what's going on, because the angels are watching. And nobody is, well, not very many people anyway, are worried about the fact that, well, you know, there's aliens watching. And the reason is because aliens are not holy. They don't come from the presence of God. And so if we remember that angels exist, then what we see is that they are meant to be a control on us and a reminder to us of how we are to behave that is in some way uh, connected to God because they are holy and in his presence and going back and forth, right? But in another way, um, are connected to us because they are creatures. And so um, this place where he brings up angels is similar to many other places where he brings up angels. Because where he does it, he's talking about about responding appropriately to those who are in authority in the church. Or those the, the relationship between an authority and a subordinate. That's what we see being talked about here. We see the elders... And the church, we see their work, and then we see this, this charge that we're not to show favoritism, that we're to judge rightly as we decide to what degree they're to be honored and to what degree they're to be disciplined, right? I mean, <laughs> those are the opposite ends of the spectrum in this, how the elders are to, are to be treated. And this is, this is given to Timothy, the pastor, but it's given to the whole church. And it's in the presence of angels that we're doing, that we're, that we're, that we are, uh, responding and, and judging the work of these elders. And so in that context where he's just gotten, given this, that, that serious, intense, uh, call to remember that we're doing this it's hard to even imagine how he makes how he adds angels as an intensifier onto the fact that we're doing it in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, you know. But actually, he he goes ahead and he adds and even the angels as an intensifier. And it's at that point that then he gives us this warning against making men elders too quickly. Okay. Right at that point where he's, where he's sh- showed us how much is at stake by saying even the angels are watching you in this, and how 
the, how the authority in the church is exercised and how the church, uh, responds to that authority. Okay. He then is, it's right there where he gives that warning. And part of the reason for this is because it takes time and discernment to see what a man is really like and even time and discernment have their limits. In other words, even time and discernment can't get you to looking into the heart of man like God does, right? I mean, that's obvious, but we we like to think that we can just be perfectly right. And once we assume that we're perfectly right, there's no stopping us from thinking we're right right now. Immediately, always, right now, I'm right. And and that's what he that's what he totally obliterates for us in this passage in the context of thinking about placing men into authority in the church and the serious nature of that and and the care that must be taken not to be too quick to do that. So let's stand now as we read this passage, 1 Timothy 5. This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, so there's that verse in in there, right, that doesn't seem to have any immediate connection to the verses surrounding it. It's this little parenthetical clause about Timothy's health, right? Well, this is a letter from Paul to Timothy, and I don't want to take a whole week and preach a sermon just on that verse, but it would be so easy to do. And and I want you to see that there's a lot that can be learned from that verse, precisely because one of the things Paul writes to Timothy is that all of Scripture is profitable, right? And so I don't want us to dismiss this verse or any individual word in these verses as not having application to us. So really quickly, though, it does seem that this is entirely parenthetical, okay? That there's not any obvious connection to either what comes before or what comes after, 
I heard one pastor talk about it as though um, maybe somebody walked into the room while Paul was writing the letter and reminded him that Timothy had been sick, and he was like, oh yeah, I've been meaning to say, by the way, don't only drink water anymore. Now, <clears throat> it's possible that there are connections to to the text, and we could we could um, guess at, at some of the other possibilities of where this would connect. But we don't really need to. It's it's not uh, that important to see where there might be connections here if we can simply say, oh yeah, that's helpful, right? Okay, so so how can we say, oh yeah, that's helpful here? One of the things is um, we do learn something about wine, Okay, and alcohol. This is this is um, not uh, not something that's controversial in general in our circles. But the moment that you step into other uh, Christian circles, still today and historically, um, you will find that the idea of alcohol is very controversial very quickly. Okay. Um, and so, I think this verse gives us a lot of help just uh, putting it in its appropriate place, which is to say, uh, there's nothing sinful about alcohol on its, in itself, right? On the one hand. And on the other hand, that it is to be put in its appropriate place, which is not limited by this verse simply to medicinal purposes, And the moment I use that phrase, of course, I know other questions are coming up. And if you want to think about that, then come to the men's study where one of the appendixes in Future Men is on Christian freedom and marijuana. We'll leave that for the men's study. Uh, Because I don't think it's attractive to any of you women here. Okay, maybe it is, but we'll we'll leave it for the men's study just the same. It's not just for medicinal purposes, although clearly that's part of what Paul is talking about here for Timothy. Okay, but when I say that I that it puts it in its appropriate place, I want you to remember what comes earlier in the book that we've studied already, right? So if you go back a few chapters, what we see is uh, Paul arguing against those who are uh, saying. We shouldn't part- that we shouldn't partake of certain foods, and that uh, and making marriage into a bad thing, and eating certain things into a bad thing, and alcohol connects right to that, and so it actually connects to the rest of the book, the context in a broader picture. All right, with a very practical application to not allowing people to simply say, this food is bad, this drink is bad, this thing that we have been given by God is bad. And here we have a very specific example of, here is something that people will say is bad, and that Paul, through his application, prevents them from being able to say it with a straight face. They have to turn their heads around backwards and see out of their ears and stuff to be able to say with a straight face, no, alcohol is still forbidden. 
You understand? Because here he is being commanded to actually partake for a particular purpose. And so if the, if food is good and it's for the stomach, then here, what do you know? You got an example of one of the ones that people want to say no to being explicitly explained as for the stomach in a, in a really earthy, physical way, right? And so it's just this sweet little thing that where you, where you get him returning to a topic that actually has come up earlier in the book. And you also get an example of the kind of love that you see between a pastor, a shepherd, and those who he, whom he is shepherding, right? In this case, Paul to Timothy, another pastor. And, and so it's an example of the kind of loving care that the pastor should have for his people and how he can speak into their life in really direct, really personal ways that nobody today is comfortable with, right? I mean, who made you a doctor, Paul? I thought you were an apostle. Don't you know that there's a firewall between the spiritual and the physical? Don't you know that you're supposed to only doctor souls and that the doctor is supposed to only doctor bodies? Right? Okay. Like I said, we could, we could do a whole sermon just on this verse. We'll stop there. There's so much that's wonderful about that verse, but I, I wanted to end with just the sweetness of that relationship and the fact that he, he just, he, without any hesitation, in the middle of talking about other stuff completely, he interjects this little instruction about how Timothy should live in this most particular, practical, personal way. It's only about Timothy. And yet, it's beneficial to all of us to see that in this letter. Now, let's move on and talk about the rest of the passage. A few weeks ago, I wrote an article and I shared it with you in the church about the necessity of judging motives. And in this sermon, we see that same theme, that men must be evaluated for the eldership, and that evaluation has to ultimately result in judging the character, judging the internal of a man, judging his heart, though we cannot see his heart, right? Judging his motives, ultimately. And the reason is because if you think about what is at stake with laying hands on a man, Paul begins to explain what is at stake, uh, with, with putting a man into eldership, what we're talking about is, uh, th- on the one hand, the possibility of having a man like the Apostle Paul sent out on his missionary journeys by the church in... Let's see, he went from Jerusalem to where? What was the church? What city was he in? What? Oh yes, he's uh, Timothy's in Ephesus. Good job. But but Paul was sent out on his missionary journey from the church down in nobody remembers Antioch. 
thank you. I was like, all of a sudden drew a blank. But Paul and Barnabas, they had their hands laid on them and sent out on the missionary journey, even though Paul was already an apostle set apart by Christ himself, right? So on the one hand, you've got Paul and Barnabas and their missionary journeys, and you look at the fruit and the wonder and what was built by God in that work, that establishing of him in that work, on, and on the other hand, you have men who are placed into the eldership, hands are laid on them, they're given the pulpit, they teach, and they are wolves in sheep's clothing devouring the sheep, and souls are destroyed. Okay, so this is, these are your two possible extremes, and, and granted, they are extremes, mostly you're gonna have a lot of in the middle, right? <clears throat> But these are the these are the things that are at stake. Either it, it it has the potential to be extraordinarily good by the power of God, or it has the possibility of being extraordinarily bad, destructive. And and what's at stake there means souls, lives. If we say that that here Paul gives Timothy this this personal instruction and speaks right into his life, and we think, what could be accomplished by a wicked man taking advantage of the trust of the people? What could be accomplished is him eating them. You understand? Eating them up. What a sad, scary thought that happens. And so then, if those are the two things that are at stake, and you think about the church making a decision and and setting apart through the laying on of hands, which happens by the leadership, okay, men for the ministry, and you've got these two extremes, then you want to know who you are appointing, don't you? You want to actually make a decision and not have it just be something that happens. It shouldn't be accidental. It shouldn't be uh, an assumed thing. It, it shouldn't be something where there is no judgment ever made about which of these is it going to be if we, if we lay hands on this man. And all of that requires us ultimately to make that judgment, to do that discerning of his motives. Is he seeking leadership, which we are told is a good thing for a man to desire, right? Is, is he seeking that because of his desire for self-glory? Is he seeking it because he thinks, look at all of the things I could get from these people with no care of what destruction would lay behind him in the process? Or is he thinking, what could I do on behalf of these people? What could I accomplish in service to them? Those are opposite motives, right? And you want to know which the man has before you put him into that position of authority. And so, 
as I said, this connects to that article I sent out. If you didn't read it, you, no problem. We'll just preach it, right? You must judge motives. There is no escaping it. All through the Bible, the, the things that we are commanded have at their, at, at, as a prerequisite, the assumption that you will judge motives. And that's what we see here when he says, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Hastily means, in this case, without knowing or without doing the work of trying to know, which is to say without judging. What are this man's motives? Men must be evaluated for the eldership. Yes, they are desiring a good thing, but that doesn't automatically make them good. (laughs) Right? The eldership properly... properly worked out is a good thing. So he who desires to be an elder desires a good thing. That doesn't mean that everybody who desires is desiring actually a good thing because they're not desiring it properly worked out. They're desiring it worked out to their own benefit. And so it doesn't automatically make them good. So there, that's the first thing. In the, in, the, in the book of Timothy, where you've got him saying, you know, he who desires this desires a good thing, and Paul is talking about the qualifications later on, and prior to, to this passage, but right after that, he goes into those, what's required. You know, they have to, they have, to have control of their family. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a, a crazy mess. They should have uh, be, been only the husband of one wife, they can't be addicted to wine, There's, they shouldn't love money, not sordid gain. you got all these things, right? Why does he go into that list when he just got done saying, well, they desire a good thing? Well, it's the same here. Just because it is a good thing doesn't mean that their desire is good. Right? You see that. Now that's an important distinction. There are so many things in this world that are good things. Okay, let's take one that is, uh, again, probably not controversial here. A gun is a good thing. (laughs) I'm filled with controversial things today. A gun is a good thing. But there are people who desire that good thing not for good reasons, right? Now maybe I'm entering into controversial territory even for us. We want to, why? Well, because I I just, I, I, I want us all to see this. You see this in your kids all the time, where they have the ability to make something that is good on its surface bad. A funny example would be, uh, you know, kid asking for more refried beans. 
oh, refried beans are good. They're good for you. You know, you eat them. They're they're healthy and so forth. But why is he asking for more refried beans? Is it so that he can eat them, or is it because he has a plastic spoon and he would like to flick them at his brother? He who desires refried beans desires a good thing. But if you don't have any idea that he's about to flick them at his brother, you're probably not paying attention as a parent. Right? (laughs) Because what kid can ask for refried beans with that intention without it being obvious on their face? I can't do it. And so, we, we see that there are many, many good things, but that we can have really, really bad motives in seeking those good things. And you must be able to judge. You, you should be able to know what your kids are going for when they ask for certain things. And when you don't know why they're asking, you think, that's strange that they would ask for uh, more time working on their homework. I wonder if that's actually what they're doing. Right? You know, you, you, you have to question. You have to judge. You have to decide. You have to discern. What are the motives here? So how are we to do that work? How are we to evaluate these men? Well, mostly, what Paul focuses on here is those who will lay hands on those men. Right? Now, again, this is one of those things where all through the book of Timothy, Paul is writing as an apostle to Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus. And so it's written to him. Just like it's, uh, you know, it's not like all of us are supposed to drink, stop drinking water exclusively. But there's something for us to learn from it, right? So he, he's writing to Timothy and saying, don't lay your hands hastily on somebody. But all of us are supposed to learn from it. The easiest application is those men who are already in leadership who would be laying their hands on these men. New elders are being appointed. Old elders are going to do the laying on of hands. And so mostly, that's who he focuses on. Those who would be doing that laying on of hands. And we learn a few things from that. We learn, first of all, that it's not just the congregation that engages in this work of discerning whether a man should be an elder or not. There is actually uh, almost an, an ability to veto on the part of the elders that are already there, right? Because guess what? If none of the elders will lay hands on the man, and the congregation wants it, there's something wrong! (laughs) Right? There's something majorly wrong. The congregation, at that point, if 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 they proceed, the congregation is rejecting and ultimately replacing its leadership to ordain and place a new man in office if they proceed with none of the men willing to lay hands on them, right? 
you see what kind of a conflict is it? I mean, you're dealing with the most fundamental kind of uh, disunity in the body. The leadership has no leadership. And if the leadership has no leadership, it's not surprising that the congregation is choosing somebody who the leadership has no approval for, no willingness to ordain. Now, they can be unwilling because they are being faithful, or they can be unwilling because they are being unfaithful. Both ways, the, the, this, this command to them not to do it hastily is uh, in the context of not showing partiality, right? But the congregation also has responsibility in this process <clears throat> to choose the man. Now, they have an incentive to be careful. The congregation has a real strong incentive to be careful about who they place over them because they're going to live under that man and under his leadership, right? And so Paul's assumption on the basis of him speaking the way he does to Timothy about his health and about what he should and shouldn't drink, Paul's assumption is that Elders are involved in the lives of the people, right? We, just, we saw that. And so if the elders are not involved in the lives of the people, then yeah, there's, then the, the incentive to be careful is totally gone on the part of the congregation. It's just like, oh yeah, that's one of those pro forma things that we do. Every once in a while, there's this, like, we're supposed to stay after church and vote by raising our hands, yes. Right? Everybody... Everybody say yes now. Yes. Okay, good. Now go home. And it has no impact on your life. You never know who that, you know, you don't interact with that guy. He doesn't ever speak into your life the way Timothy is expected to, right? Well, that's just silly. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He says that it matters. And it matters precisely because even if your elders don't actually have any in, interaction in your life, okay, that itself is Evidence of what kind of elder they are, isn't it? That's not an accidental sort of off-topic thing. So there are many churches that elect men who they know will never get involved in their life because that way they don't ever have to worry about being under them in any way. And yet... They are electing men who are leading in a certain way, and that certain way is what? Go on, run amok amongst yourselves. That's the leadership, right? And is that helpful for kids? Doesn't work out really very well, does it? I mean, it can start out okay. Oh, yeah, we're pretty good people. We work well together. We, you know, everything just sort of going. And then pretty soon you've got factions and backbiting and, and you've got grudges and you've got, and, and at that point it's like the parents are upstairs and they're hearing the, the, the things fall apart as the running amok goes further into the muck. And, and what? 
They're expected to go and do something about it. And when we have elders that we elect specifically so that they won't, that's the decision that's been made. That's the purpose behind it. The, the results of it are atrocious. So the congregation has an incentive to be careful because they live under the man. And the, my whole point that I just got done making is that you are still under that man as he refuses to engage in your life. It still has consequences for your life even if he is totally disengaged from your life. Okay? Just as an absent father is the most impactful thing in the life of a child. You, you follow? It's, it is the single most defining aspect of that child's life that dad is not present. By his very absence, he's having an effect. If we, if we elect absent elders, they are having an effect on us. It is defining of that church. It will have all kinds of consequences. So you have, as a congregation, an incentive to be careful who you elect. Other elders have an incentive, mostly, in my, in my mind, uh, to just go ahead and say yes to everybody who's put forward by a congregation. Why? Well, among other reasons, because it's like, hey, being an elder is a lot of work. I don't mind having somebody else to help out with that work. Right? And hey, being an elder is a lot of responsibility. And I don't mind having somebody else to take on some of the, sh- to share that. So that when we make a decision, you know, if we could, if I could go from 33% being responsible for that decision that blew up in our face to just 25% responsible, I'd feel better about the 25%. You know what I'm talking about? And so I think that elders for them, now there are, there are certain men who are super, super protective of them being the very only elder. And this is, this is big and still in many Baptist churches that there is only one elder. He is the, he is the Pope of that little congregation. Okay. So I'm not saying this is the the danger I'm describing here is the only way that elders can look at it. In that context, a lot of it is protecting the, the perquisites of being the only one, and you, so you receive all of the benefits. If there's honor that goes to the elders, right, that doesn't get split up either. If there's only one, and you get all of the honor. And that can feel kind of nice, but I mean, I'm telling you, for myself, if I have to choose all of the honor, and with all of the honor comes all of the responsibility and all of the work, versus sharing some of the honor and also some of the work and some of the responsibility. Oh boy, I know which one I choose. And that's actually good and right. 
it's clear that there are that there is to be a sharing of all of those things, right? Even in this passage where it's speaking to one elder, a pastor, and it's talking about him laying hands on, there's no defending there only being one elder, biblically, okay? But if that's my inclination, you see how there's a, there's an incentive on my part not to be careful to judge, or not necessarily to be too careful. Other elders are a help. And so, let's just get some elders, right? And what Paul says to Timothy is, wait, 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 because here, you know, Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how to choose, how to elect, how to, you know, qualify men. And he just, he just sort of says, but don't be too quick to do this because why? Well, laying hands on the wrong man can make you responsible for their sins. Responsible for other people's sins? I thought God was fair. We don't like this idea, right? I could be responsible for somebody else's sins? I thought they were responsible for their sins. They are. And you're responsible for, to the degree that you led them into sin. To the degree that you protected their sin. To the degree that there are all kinds of ways that you can be responsible for their sins. But more particularly, he says, the, that those who lay hands on become responsible. I just got done talking about what the, the results of the congregation choosing a man that is totally unengaged. I could also talk about the, the, uh, the results of the congregation choosing a man who is abusive, right? We could talk about all kinds of ways that elders go wrong, are bad, but I think the one that our culture mostly tends towards today is just choosing the hands-off elder because that's nice in our minds. Okay, so that's why I focused on that. Well, now you move forward to the elders laying hands on a man and adding him, and, and it says particularly that they, not the congregation, but those who lay hands on this man can become responsible for his sins. And this is precisely the warning that's given to Ezekiel. You guys remember Ezekiel? Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament who is given, uh, as all prophets are, somewhat of a nasty job to do. Right? <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> can I get some water? Oh, hey, look at that. Thanks. What a help you are. So Ezekiel has this work to do, and the work is to prophesy to the people. And God gives him this warning, and he says, if you don't tell the people, if you don't warn them, 
and they are destroyed. If you don't warn them that destruction is coming, that judgment is coming, that the enemy is upon the city, if the, if the watchman on the wall doesn't warn that this is happening, that this is coming, and then the people die, they die in their sins, but their blood is on your head. And so there is a response, they are responsible for their sins, and yet, the fact that they did not prepare, that they did not repent, their death, their blood falls on your head. As a leader, this is specifically the leaders that are being told. This is the warning that goes to Ezekiel. It's the warning that's given here to the men who would lay hands on somebody hastily and who that, that man goes into sin in his leadership and harms people, this is one of the ways that we become responsible. We become responsible for the blood of those who are destroyed at the hands of false shepherds when we lay hands on them falsely. Now, there is a limit to this. And I want to say that right now. There is a limit to this. Um, Paul with the Ephesian elders, who he was closer to than anybody else in, in, his, in his ministry work, okay, says, from among your own midst men will arise speaking perverse things to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Okay? Now, is Paul responsible for those men and their sins? He was responsible in some way, shape, or form, for all of their selection and, and, and being placed in as elders, right? I mean, even through Timothy, he bears some connection to, to that. So, does that mean that uh, the moment that, some, that a man has ever laid hands on a man who then turns away from the faith, is a wolf, begins to destroy people, that suddenly... That man is disqualified, the first man who laid hands on him is disqualified from ministry? No. It doesn't mean, no more than the fact that one of your children may turn away from the Lord and reject his covenant promises and become a covenant breaker, right? That does not mean that a man is automatically disqualified and that he does not have uh, his his home in order. Do you see that? And the proof that I want to offer of this is that Jesus chose the twelve. And the twelve included who? Judas. Judas. And so there is a limit to the responsibility that the men who lay hands on other men bear, right? <clears throat> And partly that limit comes from the fact that we can't look into people's hearts. But it extends even beyond that because Jesus could and did and knew what was going on with Judas. <clears throat> and yet still it was, it was part of God's sovereign will and is and, and, it, and it remains clear that this will always be the case, that there will be false shepherds that arise. 
And so the test of the man is not, did you always choose perfectly who you were to lay hands on? Right? Did you always, I mean, did you always choose perfectly who your kids were going to be? Well, come on. (laughs) No. There is a limit. But the test continues beyond when you laid hands on them. And it goes back to those previous verses that said, if he continues in sin, the one who continues in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. And so, just because you may have laid hands on a man, or you as a congregation may have elected a man who is wicked in the end, whose sins are revealed, and who is a false shepherd, does not mean that God is no longer faithful. Does not mean that he is not at work by the power of his Holy Spirit in the selecting of these men. That he is not giving them true authority in their work as elders by the laying on of hands. Remember what Paul says to Timothy about the laying on of his hands, that the gift that is within him through the laying on of hands. This is a serious thing. And so there is, it's a joyful, joyous, wonderful thing to be able to be a part of selecting men. It's even, it's even more joyous to be able to be a part of laying hands on them and seeing the, the work that is done by them and that you get responsibility for that too, in a sense. It's not just the downside. Jesus gets all the glory for all the work that Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles does, doesn't he? But the focus here is on being responsible for their sins. And so being tricked by a false shepherd is bad news for the sheep if they select him, right? But it's much worse news for a shepherd who lays hands on him because he will be held to a higher standard. And it is his job to protect the sheep from following after a false shepherd. And so if we lead others into sin, we become partially responsible for their sins. The more innocent and helpless they are, the greater our own responsibility. If we lead people into sin, and that's part of what happens by the laying on of hands on a wicked man, right? We're leading the congregation into danger. And those who are least knowledgeable we are most responsible for the damage that happens to them. right? Those who are least able to protect themselves, we are most responsible for as shepherds to protect and make sure that nothing happens to them. And if we cause a little child to stumble, it would be better for us if we were thrown into the sea with heavy rocks tied around our necks. Not this passage, but definitely God's word. So picking an elder must be done carefully. Now, at this point, 
we might be tempted to think we can simply watch to see if somebody is a good man, right? You get done, I get done being like, this is important, this is serious, there are consequences. It's important, it's serious, there are consequences. There can be good consequences, but there can be bad consequences too. And you say, okay, well, I guess we better look at the man. And then, and then, what? We want there to be a way that we can choose such that we never make any mistake. No mistakes allowed. And, and many Baptist churches go even further in saying, not only are we going to make sure we never make a mistake about who we put in as elder, we're going to never make a mistake about who we accept as a member. Paul's not talking about never making a mistake. He's talking about being careful. And he then goes on and he explains how if we simply want to try to create these rules about how we're going to evaluate men, that that actually is going to end up being favoritism. Okay, so now let's let's look at why that is. Um, how many good men have you found out later on just weren't good? Were bad. I mean, you, you understand what I'm saying. Like, whoa, they were what? I thought they were good. But in point of fact, they're worse than bad. Have you ever run into this before? I, I think all of you have. happens all the time. And so why why does that happen? Well, is it because you weren't looking at their life? Well, sometimes it's because we're refusing to see, right? We're not looking at their life. We're not judging. We're not willing to discern. And therefore, we're, we're caught off guard when it's like, he was wearing a mask and holding a gun against your head. How did you not know that he was a bad man? Right? Sometimes people, I just had no idea. I thought I was just going on a walk with him. With the gun pressed against your back? You know, no, you knew. You had to have known. How did you not know? You, you were not paying attention. But sometimes they're not doing that. They really are, to all appearances, being good men. And yet we're still shocked, surprised, blown away, jaw dropped. He was what? Now, it could be something as simple as he was, he was taking money from the offering plate week after week, year after year. That's happened in a church I was at. But he was a good man. And plus, he had no need for the money. It doesn't even make sense. And so often, sin doesn't make sense, right? But it's in these places where Paul then begins to say that there are two kinds of men, if you will. There's two kinds of sins, at least. There are the sins that go before the man, and there are the sins that follow after the man. Now, you guys know about cars, right? You know how you open up the front of the car and inside there's the engine. Kids know about that? Have you ever opened up the hood of your 
car and looked inside and there's the engine. In front of the car is the engine and the engine pulls the car forward, right? But some sports cars, my sister had a car that was small enough and sporty enough that when you opened up the front, there was no engine. There was just storage space there. You had to go to the back, and their engine was there in the back. And that engine pushes the car. <laughs> right? So the engine can be in the front of the car, or the engine can be in the back of the car. Either way, it's driving the car, right? Well, that's what we see with sins here. It requires real work to discern whether a man is fit for office, partly because there are those two kinds of sins that men engage in. There's the blatant sins out there in front of you for everybody to see. And then there's the hidden sins. I read an article this last week. It was talking about a photographer who takes pictures of every kind of life that people live around the world. Every kind of life. I don't remember the name of this project. Uh, But the photographer said that they thought before they started that it would be easiest to photograph rich people. But it turns out they were dead wrong. That rich people are the hardest to photograph. And they said the reason is because they don't want their real life being seen and presented, but rather a staged Instagram life. And so it was impossible to, for the photographer to like take re- pictures of the real life of rich people. But it was easy to take pictures of the real life of poor people. Now, interestingly enough, this connects to the sins of rich people and poor people. And so just as it's impossible to take pictures of the real life of rich people, it's also impossible to see the sins of rich people. I don't mean impossible or or never, you understand. But rich people use their money to hide their sins. Poor people, their sins are out there and obvious for everybody. So you go down you go down to the poorest parts of Cincinnati, where there are people hanging around on the streets, and they're poor. And their sin is just right out there in the public for everybody to see, oftentimes in their hand, in a brown paper bag, right? And they're ashamed of it, but, they're, but it's impossible to hide it. So, so you go on a walk in Chicago, and you're, you're, you start talking to some of these people, and they're like, and it's a youth group, and they, the youth group asks, can, can, can we pray for you? And they're like, oh, yeah, uh... Don't pay any attention to that. (laughs) But there's nothing they can do. Everybody sees that. It's sitting next to them on the step, right? And the fact that it's the middle of the afternoon and they're not working and there's no reason for that except for the fact that they're lazy. So the the sins of the poor people are just, they're just blatant. They're out there for everybody to see. Nobody, they just can't hide them. But the rich people, their sins are hidden. And this secular photographer saw that. 
that the rich people hide what their real life is like. But the poor people can't be bothered. They don't have the time or the money or the ability to do that. So these things are, are obvious when we have eyes to see. And so this is why churches always elect rich elders. And that makes sense, right? After all, the rich men are good and the poor men are bad. Isn't that what we just learned? You can see the sins of the poor people. No, it's not what we just learned. We just learned that it's harder to judge and see the sins of the rich man. The rich hide their sins quite well. In the end, both the rich man and the poor man, the man whose sins go before him and the man whose sins come after him, will be judged. whether they're hidden or otherwise. And children do this too. You know, some of your kids are blatant with their rebellion. And you just, I mean, it's like you have to spank them all the time. Every time you tell them to do something, their brow furrows. They, I don't want to. And they just, it's just like, boom, they're in your face. No. And the rebellion is blatant. And other kids are always just so perfect. And you better watch out. Because if you, if you elect elders, and we see that's what happens, it, it's just, it is what happens all across the country, all, probably all around the world, you know, it's the rich men that get elected. Why? Well, because we're just not very good at seeing the sin. And then, if we do that with our kids, oh, there's never any discipline for the one who hides their sin and their sin follows after them in their rebellion, right? That's going to be a problem. There really is such a thing as good and bad kids. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I mean, there are better and worse. There are good and bad men. I, I don't mean to say that... that there are, uh, everybody's exactly the same, except that they're all sinners. And what Paul is saying is don't be too quick to assume you know. Don't be hasty to make that decision, to judge on the basis of that outward, because you might disqualify the man whose sin is out there and everybody sees it and it's just like, it's his struggle, and it's his sin, and he's responsible for it, and all sin in one sense disqualifies, right? And the people are like, oh, well, you know, you can see his sin. It's, yuck, we don't like sin, right? But his sin is minor compared to the man that you elect who has hidden his sin. Are you better off? No, you're worse off, Right? And so we, I know what we want to do at this point when we're told to be careful judging is to throw up our hands and say it's impossible. But Paul won't let us do it. God won't let us do that. He says at the end that the deeds, both good and bad, will become evident. And it's up to you to watch. 
to look, to evaluate, to judge. And he urges us to do that hard work of watching, waiting, and ultimately judging with care and then by faith, trusting God with the outcome, knowing that, yes, some men will be elected who are false shepherds, who are wolves. Some men we will lay our hands on who will do damage. And we will be responsible for their sins. And yet, God will grant us wisdom. And the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident. And those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. It can't be concealed. It will out in the end. And that's, that's a joy to us to know. Even though it scares you if you've been hiding your sins. Maybe it's scary to think, I don't want those in the open. But in the end, you want a church that's protected by good men. And so it's good to know that the sins and the good deeds will be evident in the end. Let's pray.